Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning. The book of Revelation is actually a discipleship manual. It explains to us what's happening all the time, all around us, until Jesus returns. Specifically, it explains to us that there are spiritual dimensions to everything that's happening in your life personally or individually, but also to the things that are happening in the world around us. It gives us pictures of basically these three monsters who are interfering, (laughs) intervening, and trying to control the world's affairs. One And the number one of the monsters is called the dragon or the red dragon. And this is basically, Revelation says, this is the ancient serpent Satan who has been devouring people and has grown from being a serpent into a dragon because of all the evil that he has done. Satan cannot do anything without copying God. So therefore, Satan has his own unholy trinity. They comprise of the beast of the sea, which is some type of a bestial type son of the dragon. And then the beast of the earth, which is a, a type of some of a false Holy Spirit that gives miracle and signs and wonders so that uh, the worship of the beast is actually a worship of the dragon. Now, the reason the scripture tells us these things in this kind of picture language It's because it doesn't want you to get caught up that this is one empire or another. Definitely describing what the first century church was going through with the Roman Empire. That empire was an evil empire. It was not an empire of justice. It was an empire of oppression. And if you were a Christian, you were being forced to take the mark of the beast in order to work because you had to worship the emperor, the Caesar, whoever that was. And you couldn't work unless you were devoted to the worship of that emperor. So you couldn't provide for your family. You weren't safe. You might be thrown into prison. You might be killed. And so we live in this day and age with all the activities of these three monsters still working and working very strongly But especially Revelation tells us that the dragon was watching for the birth of the Messiah. Now, the dragon knew all along, Scripture says, all along that this Messiah would come through the line of Judah. And so the dragon was waiting for the birth so that he could kill this child. Now, what he didn't know is that by killing the child, he was actually fulfilling the plan of God. For you see, through that child's death, a deeper, deeper magic was taking place. And that magic is this. No one can stay dead if there is no sin in their life. And since our Savior had lived a perfectly obedient life and had no sin, when he went into death, death could not hold him because death had no hold over him. And so what looked like the victory of the dragon became the victory of the Son of God and of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world so that we who are devoted to the Lamb, we who are linked to the, to the, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we too have no longer a record of sin that the death or that the dragon can hold over us. When Jesus blew the back door out of death, he said, come follow me. Now, again, I say to you, Satan copies God. We have not an unholy trinity, but a holy trinity. And the book of Revelation is filled over and over again 
with though the dragon hates both the people who birthed the Messiah and the people who now live for the Lamb, and he hates with a passion, our Trinitarian God makes promises throughout Revelation that though all these things are taking place, the people of the Lamb, Team Lamb we've been calling it, are protected, are provided for, and have promises that will not fail. That though all this stuff makes, if you read the book of Revelation, what's going on in the world makes perfect sense. But you and I cannot live our lives looking at the world. We have to live our lives living in the promises. We have to live our lives not only in pure devotion to the Lamb, but believing the Lamb's pure devotion to you. Now, I want to look. Are you tracking with me? So I'm going to look at chapter 14 and 15 in a, in a kind of a quick way. But I'm going to ask the guys who are doing the uh, PowerPoint for me, will you go to my next to the last slide for me? I'm going to tweak it to, on this one. Okay, so in Revelation 15... After all the judgment has taken place and all the things have been made right, in 15 verse 2, it says this. This is John speaking. He says, I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. This is a picture When things have concluded, this is a picture that you, as a follower of the Lamb, have to hold on to because you have to wait for it and you have to live through it. But when it all comes to pass, those who are worshipers of the Lamb are standing in victory. And they have been victorious over the beast, they've been victorious over the image of the beast, and they've been victorious over not allowing the number 666 to characterize their lives. And what you see before the throne of God, there are no worshipers of the beast. As a matter of fact, here it says in verse 3, only those who sing the song of victory are before the Lamb. And the victory song is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. See, what we're seeing in chapter 15 is we see the final exodus, not just an exodus from Egypt, but a final exodus from sin and death, from Babylon, from all the things that you wrestle with now that seem to have no end and no conclusion. They come to an end, and there is a conclusion. And one of the things that's so interesting is as they sing, they sing this verse, "'Who will not fear you, Lord?' See, right now, the enemy is trying to get you to fear him. He wants you to fear circumstances. He wants you to fear people. He wants you to fear that you're not safe or that you're not worth anything. He wants you to fear him. He does not ask you directly to worship him. He asks you to worship yourself. He asks you to be self-protective. He asks you to be selfish. He asks you to be all about self. And as you do that, he says, that's worship of me. But in this day, when all things come together and all those who are victorious are before the throne, no one is worshiping the beast. But everyone, even those who worship the beast, are fearing the Lord. And one of the things that it says is that from that day forward, Everyone brings glory to his name. And the reason is that God alone is holy. Now, when you see this and you see how things turn out, when you see what theologians have called the church triumphant, you have to get this picture because you won't always see it in this world. Now, What we need in the midst of what's going on in your life is you need personal certainty that this is where you'll be and this is, this is right for you to to devote yourself to the glory of God in this way. Because many times the life you're leading doesn't look that glorious. 
and the things you're having to suffer don't seem that glorious. But yet what we see is this picture of victory because you hold on, because you worship, because you begin to realize no one else is worthy of my worship but the Lord himself. No other glory can satisfy my hunger for glory but the glory of the Lord. And there's no one else so beautiful that I would worship other than the holiness of my God. And so what happens is when you hold on now, you are echoing what will be true then. But you're not echoing it just in your heart. You're echoing it into a world that thinks the dragon has power. And so every time you hold on and say, I am certain that I shall be victorious. And you're echoing that glory that will be yours and that will be his. And you're echoing it into the world now. You're hearing the echo of the future and you're bringing it into the present. And when you do this, when you decide, because this is an act of the will, that the that your personal experience of the presence of God is worth everything to you. Now, I want to give you something to think about with this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but when I was growing up, I heard this all the time. It's often said that believers who are so heavenly minded are of no earthly use. But the truth is, if you're of no earthly use as a believer, it is because you're not nearly heavenly-minded enough. See, those who have gone before us and who have truly made a lasting difference in the world were the ones who were the most heavenly-minded of all. You see, you cannot, if you know this, if you believe what I believe, that there is a supernatural activity going on around you. You cannot have non-supernatural remedies to the supernatural causes. So there has to be for you to deal with your finances. You have to be heavenly minded because you have to know how to apply the promises of God to your job, to your work, to your finances. If, if God has said, I will supply your needs, he's not going to do it if there's no heavenly mindedness about the way you pursue your needs. If you don't believe him, then he has to slip tokens of his love into your life instead of lavish his love on you. You have to be heavenly minded to influence and to impact all those who are earthly minded around you. I've seen so many parents go, I wish my kids would follow Jesus. And I look and I say, well, if you follow Jesus in a heavenly-minded sort of way, instead of living in an earthly-minded way and then hope that they have a free pass to heaven, doesn't really work that way. Here's one of the things I've seen. Whatever is sinful in one generation gets magnified in the next. It's worse. It's not better. And so what we, what we must, Revelation is saying, is there must be a recognizable mark in your life. What's happening to many of us is we don't realize we look just the same as those who follow the beast. And those who follow the beast will never catch a glimpse of the glory or of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if you're not echoing that's kind of glory in your life. There are no shortcuts here. See, what we're dealing with is believers who are not heavenly minded enough. What we're dealing with are believers who have no certainty that causes a glory to rise up in us that makes it to where we don't surrender our glory to this world. What we're seeing as we see ourselves around the throne in victory is we're seeing Christ triumphant. And we see that therefore, since Christ is triumph, his victory is my victory. And I then am more than a conqueror because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Here is the certainty 
that I'd like you to at least express once today. Will you turn to your neighbor? You need to point at him. I've been training you. All right. All right. So say this to him. I am certain that Christ triumphs. And because I am in Christ, his victory is my victory. That's why I can say I am more than a conqueror. I will live. I will live in his glory. I, I tricked you guys that time. You thought you were going to tell that to that person. Because usually that's what I do. But I wanted you to say it about you to another person. See, I don't care what your, what your evangelism method is. If it doesn't reflect the glory to come, it's not going to impress the earthly-minded. You are people of heavenly mindedness. You can echo his glory in such a way that the earthly minded will be impressed. Are you tracking with me? All right, will you take me back to my first slide? I'm making them work back there. All right, so this is chapter 14. And what I like to do is I like to read this out loud. I like it when you read together. This is also kind of a scary passage. So I like it because you comfort me to read it with me. This is kind of a scary passage, pretty, pretty intense. Let's read God's word together. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who will dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So we go back to, in a sense, the, the end of all this, or the, the objective of all this, is that those who are victorious of the Lamb are spending their time devoted to the Lamb and worshiping the Lamb. And so the question, in some ways, I think is well put by a book by Scott McKnight where he says this, how does one live in a world that is anti-God, devoted to opulence, consistently opposed to the way of the Lamb, full of itself and intent on being impressive, protected with the might of its militarism, aiming to become the international power, living on the precipice of constant internal betrayals, driven by economic exploitation of anyone and everyone, structured into a mysterious hierarchical system of power and honor, and at the bottom of it all is driven by arrogance and ambition. How is one to live in Babylon and not be of Babylon when boxed in by Babylon? Empires rise, empires fall, but they're always present in some form. And so what you, what, 
what you see in this quote, I think is really important, is how do I live in this present world situation and not be overcome in such a way that I lose my devotion to the Lamb and instead I'm finding myself meeting my needs in the works of the dragon or in the works of of Babylon. And so we look at this and you see that there's a tremendous difference between the two cities that are portrayed in Revelation. So Babylon is basically the city made by humans, which is actually the city of the world system so that that which is true of the devil, that which is true of evil, temptation, deception, Accusation. These things are basically provided by the system that Revelation is calling Babylon. And the contrast, however, is that there is another city, a city which those who have given themselves to the Lamb and to whom the Lamb has given himself, another city, which is the longing of our hearts, and that's called New Jerusalem. So, When the Bible says in verse 8, it says, Babylon, the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. It's not primarily, friends, talking about sexuality. It is primarily talking about allegiance, focus, talking about where you get your needs met, how you get your needs met. Here is one of the most amazing things about the God of the Bible. He doesn't merely say, keep the rules. He says, love me. He doesn't just say, be afraid of me because I am awesome. Rather, he says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So what he has done, if you read the Old Testament and then you read the New Testament, is he has offered himself to us in every meaningful relationship possible. For example, he's a father to the fatherless. He's a husband to the one who longs to be married. He's a brother to those who are brothers and sisters. He's joint heirs with us. There's no relationship that's meaningful to us that he doesn't long to have with us. And he has done everything through the cross, through the resurrection, through sending his Holy Spirit so that we can have intimacy with God on a level that religion does not allow. But he says this, when I'm offering all this to you, and instead you look to something else other than me, as the source of your life, as the source of your needs, when you look to something else, you're not just breaking the law, you're breaking my heart. You are committing, he says, spiritual adultery. So when you find your life in Babylon, you're no longer finding your life in God. And when your heart is broken and and double-minded in its devotion, then you are saying that you love God, but you're committing adultery with every other God. So it is not simply that you can kind of change your morality. It's that you got to change your heart. And you have to change what your heart focuses on. And it has to be a devotion to him that supersedes all other things. Now, if you've ever known the presence of God, and if you've ever known how to surrender to the presence of God, you will know when you're living in his presence, and you will know when you're not. And what I want you to hear is you can live in his presence 24-7, but you're choosing not to. And, friends, we're choosing not to in a way that shows that there are places where I trust you, God, but I love you, God, but I will obey you, God, but not here. And wherever that contrast is, that's the adultery. And so what we've been is seduced to think I can have a relationship with God, 
but I can get my needs met in the world. Now, most of you, your idols are not evil things, hopefully, but your idols are still idols. And what happens is most of us, our idols are good things that we've made ultimate things. Like you could say, you know, I love you, God, but I can't live without my spouse. I love you, God, but you've got to make sure my family, this happens and that happens. And so what happens is your anxiety over anything reveals your actual worship. Whatever you're truly anxious over is what is ultimate to you. And instead of yielding to God, you're actually revealing a level not only of idolatry, but of pride. Because you're saying, I know how my life would go best. Now, the truth is that if you're a spouse, you should want your spouse to be utterly devoted to Jesus. If you're a, a parent or, or you're, a, you know, you're in a family, you want your family to be devoted to Jesus. Because here's what happens. When we give ourselves to Babylon, it defiles us. She's called the great prostitute. It may look okay, but it defiles you because belonging to her defiles you. You can't give yourself to Babylon without uniting yourself to the defiling character of Babylon. And so you walk away with guilt. You walk away with shame whenever you go and say, I need my needs met in Babylon. And all of us, all of us do this. There are these moments, you see, where it's not really about your behavior, friends, it's about your heart. Jesus said some things that were pretty, pretty uh, difficult. He said, you say I don't commit adultery, but I say if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus said, you say you haven't committed murder, but I say if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. And I know some of you hate your brother on the park, you know, on the parkway, on the bridge, on the... I hated somebody yesterday because uh, I was wishing them off the bridge after it took 25 minutes to get across. You know, because what happens is somebody gets in your way, you, you would maybe say, I just don't like them, but that's because you're a liar. And you actually do hate them because you want them out of your way and whatever it takes to get out of your way. The other thing is that our hearts are so defiled, and we don't realize how defiled they are, we even take things, let's, let's say like the, and I, I've tried to drill this in you a little bit, but we take things like lying, and we use ungodly motivation to lie or to not lie. For example, if you lie, it's probably because you're afraid you'll get caught, or you're afraid people think less of you, which Thinking you'll get caught or thinking less of you is basically pride. I don't want anybody to know that I'm a liar. I don't want anybody to know that I'm a fake. Well, why do people not lie? Well, they don't lie for the same reason. My mother trained us this way. We are not that kind of people, which is exactly pride, right? Although we were liars, so we were even lying about the fact that we lied. You see, the issue isn't whether I can catch you in your behavior. The issue is what your heart is focused on. And you see, belonging to Babylon defiles you. But belonging to the lamb who already knows you're a liar, who already knows you have murder in your heart, who already knows that you have an issue with lust, who already knows that you can't keep the commandments. And so what does he do? He, what does he do? He cleanses you. He cuts off the hooks that you have with Babylon and he makes it to where you're brand new. Where you're not only trying to get acceptance from God, but actually he's made you accepted by God. See, the problem for many Christians is that they're still trying to show their record when they are accused. We read in Revelation that the dragon accuses you day and night. Every time you put up your record, he's winning. 
Every time you say, it's not my record, but it's Jesus' record, then the dragon has nothing to say. See, if every time you're accused, every time you feel guilty, every time you feel regret, every time you feel ashamed, if you will make that a place of praise, then the enemy will no longer have access to you. Because the Lord is enthroned in our worship, and the enemy can't stand to see the Lord enthroned in your heart. Oh, come on. That was better than that. Come on. Come on. So you have to get to the place where you recognize how cleansing it is to belong to the Lamb. And then what that does is because you can see how he cleanses you, you start realizing, I can, in an undefiled way, give my pure devotion to Jesus. And you see, what's the end result? Well, the end result is when you're there before the sea of glass, before the throne of God, before the very lamb himself, you will not see anyone who's praising the beast. You'll only see those who are saying, who else is worthy except our God? And your heart, which begins now to echo that moment, is prepared to take on Babylon, to take on the accusations and accuser himself, because you being submitted and surrendered to Jesus is a protection for you and activates the promises that are throughout Revelation that the Lord himself will protect his church, that the Lord himself will save his church. But you have to begin here and now and realize it was never an earning plan. It was always a rescue plan. Are you hearing me? Two of you. See, even though all of these defeats of the enemy and all of these activities of the enemy are going on all around in the book of Revelation, everything goes back to a vision of the Lamb, victorious, having conquered, having overcome. And you see, when you worship, you enter into the victory. When you begin to give yourself in pure devotion to the Lamb, you are allowing yourself to say, I have a source that is greater than what I'm seeing in the world. You understand, even the horrors that are happening right now cannot, should not divert your attention from being heavenly-minded men and women. We were in Uganda back in 2007. There had been this 20 years of civil war. It was not simply bullets and ammunition. It was spiritual. The one who was leading the rebellion every day would give himself to, I think, eight spirits, eight evil spirits. And his leaders were all giving themselves to these evil spirits. They knew where the Ugandan army would be. And though the army was far better outfitted with modern weapons and all these things, this little band of demonized warriors were defeating a modern army. One of our friends and co-workers there went to the president and said, Sir, you are fighting a spiritual battle. You can only fight this battle if you'll have a spiritual remedy. And the president said, I think you're right. And so he empowered our friend, and our friend went and got 77 intercessors. Remember the number 66, the number 77 now? He gets 77 intercessors, and they began to lead the army. So they're coming through this one part of Uganda, and there's an ambush laid, because you see the demons gave words of knowledge to these demonically inspired soldiers. So the ambush is laid. Our friend is with these other intercessors is being shot at. There are real bullets penetrating the cars and all these things. And my friend gets out and says, you will not kill me today. And he blows a trumpet. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a trumpet trump bullets. Yet he blew the trumpet of the Lord, he said, 
They unloaded all their ammunition. Not a single intercessor was hit. Every car was full of bullet holes. The glass had been shattered. All these things had happened. And yet, not a single intercessor was hit with one of those bullets. Because again, friends, you can't fight spiritual warfare without weapons that are designed for the tearing down of strongholds. When the rebels saw that the bullets were shot but did not penetrate, they threw down their weapons and they gave their lives to Christ. Why am I telling you that story? Because you are involved in spiritual warfare. You keep thinking that if you're earthly minded, you'll be secure. If you're earthly minded, you'll keep your job. If you're earthly minded, you'll keep your family. I'm telling you, there's spiritual warfare. And the one who does the warfare hates the followers of the lamb. Christianity is not something you can do in moderation. It is either all or nothing. And the issue is what you worship. The issue is what has gotten the eye of your heart to worship. Now, you might say to me, well, is God up there going, I need your worship? No, God doesn't need any of your worship. But here is the way we humans are. Have you not noticed this, that a great experience is not complete until you share it. I mean, I'm watching football games and Lisa doesn't care a lick, but it is no fun unless I say, did you see that? And she might say, what inning is it? You know? No, she's going to get me for that one because she doesn't do that. But I'm enjoying this game. It's not fun by myself without having a conversation about how fun it is And sometimes she's in the other room and I'm screaming at the TV and she's like, what's the matter? It's no fun unless I'm talking about it, even to myself. Some of you are resonating with me right now. See, we were made to worship. And when we have an exciting or a fulfilling or an emotional experience, it's not complete till we have shared it. Worship is an an experience with God that's not complete till I share it with other people or share it with him. So you're not worshiping for his sake. You're worshiping to complete the circle of exciting, fulfilling, utterly emotional experiences. And the major habit of the book of Revelation is worship. For you to overcome, you have to worship. But it's more than just singing songs. It's an embodied worship where every day you're making these choices. God, I'm not going to check out on you. God, I'm not going to suddenly decide, okay, I, I love you, but I'm going to, I'm going to go find my real joy over here. Or God, I'm going to check out for a little while and go over there and do this for a while. And then I'll ask forgiveness and then I'll come back to you. See, Embodied worship begins to bring that echo of glory into your heart and into your life in such a way that you begin to be recognized as a person who has been with Jesus. Because as you walk in the way of the Lamb, you become like the one you worship. And the truth is, every one of us in this room, we want to become less like we used to be and more like we will be. This is our, this is our, our right. This is our ability, even in this day and age. So how important is this? Well, look at the message of the three angels. What does the first angel say? And this, friends, this is the mercy of God that the angel comes and the angel proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. But he says to people, Fear God, which doesn't mean be afraid of God. It means give God his rightful place. And it says, love God, worship God, give him the glory. You see, you and I, we are glory-hungry creatures who are glory-empty. So we go through life trying to grab the glory. And what the angel is saying is, stop trying to find the glory in Babylon. 
Give him the glory and he will fill you with glory. And you will live in eternal glory. But he's saying something so interesting to me because he's basically doing Psalm 2. And he's saying, the Lord has established his king. Now kiss the son. Bow before the sun before it's too late. That's why Christianity isn't merely morality. It's not merely philosophy. It is loving Jesus. It is recognizing how much Jesus loves you and then you loving Jesus. Because you see, people who don't love Jesus can still tell the truth, though they're living a lie. Because you can't live without knowing the reality that he is the king and he is the Lord and he wants to be your friend, your brother, and your closest confidant. But you see what happens is angel two, people still resist. And by angel two, the message is too late. And it says the Babylon in which you have fallen, in which you have trusted has fallen. And when God's judgment falls, it's too late. I've been studying mercy and grace lately, and I saw something I haven't seen before. Usually when I think of mercy, I think God doesn't give you what you deserve, which is the negative. He doesn't do the the judgment on you. And grace is you're given what you don't deserve, so he gives what you didn't earn. And those things are true, but this this is the biblical idea. No one really experiences mercy unless they're desperate for it. You only truly go for mercy when you realize you have no other choice and nothing else will work. And grace can only be experienced by those who will admit that they are helpless before God. So mercy is for the desperate. Are you desperate? Grace is for the helpless, which means you have to humble yourself. And what happens is, though grace and mercy are abundantly expressed, the people do not respond. They do not respond, and judgment has to come. And the third angel tells us all about this judgment that's coming to take place. Now, basically, many of us have trivialized the work of the both the mark of the beast and and this unholy trinity and made it into some kind of movie like left behind or something that is not it's not very accurate there's not going to come some day where you're going to where there's going to be some credit card you get and that makes you part of this no this is see it's copying it's copying what is it that you and I do that shows that we are helpless, that shows that we are desperate, well, we come to the table of the Lord. When we come to the table of the Lord, we're not saying, oh, look at me, I'm a sinless person who doesn't need a Savior. No, we're coming and saying, I'm dead in my sins and my trespasses. The only way I can be made alive is is by the blood of the Lamb and by the body that was broken for me. See, in some ways, I've always thought that the two elements are so important because the biggest issue in our life are guilt and shame. And so what does the blood do? Well, the blood takes away the guilt. There's forgiveness of sin. The sins are taken as far away as the east is from the west. But what's the, what's the bread? Well, the bread is the broken body of the Lord Jesus where he owned my sin. He became my sin. So what causes me shame has been covered has been exchanged so that no longer does he see me as a guilty and shameful person, but he's not ashamed to call me his brother because I have his record now, not mine. So what does the enemy do? Well, the enemy wants you to eat of your own efforts. He wants you to drink at the fountain of your own pride. He wants you to believe that you are enough. He wants you to believe that you don't need God, that God needs you in some way. He wants you to believe that if, if, it, if, you're, if it's to be done, it's to be done by you. No one else will really matter but you. And everybody else in your life are just supporting caste. See, the enemy doesn't ever say, worship me. He just says, focus on you. Because you see, when you're focused on self, you're no longer focused on the Lamb. 
And when you're focused on self, he counts that as worship to him. So the deeper issue in our life, friends, is pride. The deepest issue is pride. This, this whole thing started because the dragon said, I'll put my throne up higher than God's throne. Now in chapter 14, I'll finish. I hear the music, so I will finish sometime. Yeah. John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. See, the, the issue is this. Restlessness is characteristic of the beast. Rest is characteristic of the lamb. See, here, here's, what, here's what's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to stand before the throne of God and we're all going to face judgment. Now those who are not in the Lamb will say, look at what I've done, God. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. So their deeds will not follow them. Their needs will precede them. Because in pride, they're going to say, I'm worthy. In pride, they're going to say, see what I've done. See how hard I've worked. But the problem is, anybody who works for him or herself is always restless because it's never enough. And so the difference is that those who are in the Lamb, it says they come and they show the record of the Lamb. And then you look and behind them are all the things that have happened in their lives because they trusted the Holy Spirit, because they were heavenly minded, because they were devoted to the Lamb. And they see you see all these people whose lives have been impacted because you can't impact earthly minded people if you're earthly minded. So I think the mark of the beast is pride. And one of the best examples of this is Nebuchadnezzar. He was the master of every part of the world that he knew. He had a, he had a hole in his heart that couldn't even be filled when he was emperor of the whole world. Isn't it interesting? He's the one who built Babylon. That was his city. And when he got to the top of his deeds, he fell apart. Now, here is the mercy of God to make the king who called himself king of kings, to make the king of kings realize he was not the sovereign of all the earth. He, get, he, was, given, he was given a dream. He couldn't sleep. Said the Lord was going to make him bow down. See, what Nebuchadnezzar had was a cancer in his heart. He had a corruption in his heart that's called pride. And there were two indicators of that pride. One is he was restless. He couldn't even sleep at night. But the second one was one of the most interesting characteristics that I've ever seen because I see it over and over and over again. He was not able to listen. Even when Daniel told him, this is God speaking to you and he's about to humble you. You need to humble yourself. Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I am prosperous. I'm, I'm, I'm content in my palace. Nothing's going to happen to me. And then his whole world fell apart because he wouldn't listen. I'm saying to you today that devotion to the lamb brings rest. It brings peace. It brings love. It brings joy. It brings an experience that you have to share with other people because it's not complete till you share it. But I'm saying pride, which is the mark of the beast, makes you always restless, never able to rest, never able to trust, and unable to listen, which is a little bit of why deception works so well. Because when you're deceived, you don't even know you're deceived. And when you don't listen, it's because you don't listen. I mean, how many of you in this room, and it would be terrible to put your hands up, have heard from your family, your spouse, somebody, you never listen. That's, man, there's a lot of guilt going up right now. You understand that's the pride that's killing you. Instead of the recognizable mark of the seal of the Holy Spirit, 
what we're seeing in our restlessness and our anxiety, what we're seeing in our anger, what we're seeing in restless souls is that we could put pride to death, but we're choosing pride and not realizing it's taking us into Babylon. In the mercy of God, he's trying to make you desperate for him enough through the circumstances of your life, through the dreams you can't sleep through, through all the stuff that's going on. He's trying to make you desperate enough to cry out for mercy and then to listen to him and then receive his grace, which brings rest and will bring the kind of accomplishments and impressive life that will impress even the earthly-minded that it is important to be heavenly-minded. But it's a choice. So you can keep not listening. You can keep not listening. Or you can listen. And this, I think, is one of my favorite verses in 14. Would you look at your neighbor one more time, and then I'll, I'll let you go. I'm sorry. This time, I do want you to preach at him. You ready? Here is a call for your endurance. For those who keep the commandments and to keep your faith. All right, now point at them. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know your labor in him is not in vain. Pride is so integrated into our lives because we have lived our lives in Babylon. And even today, friends, you need a word and you need people to minister to you so you break the hooks that Babylon has in you. And so you have pure, undefiled, complete devotion to the Lamb. Nothing else is worth your life. 